Go ahead and be seated. So, Keegan, it's always dangerous to make a comment like that when the guy is going to have the microphone next. But someday, Keegan, you're going to get the experience of what it's like to be low maintenance and aerodynamic, and it's good. It's good, man. It's all good. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 11. Um, there was a, there's something that's, that's really fascinating in the world, at least to me, that's happening right now, is um, in the Himalaya, the highest peak in the world is Mount Everest. And it is a time, there's something unique that happens right now uh, because it is high enough that there's a jet stream that hits the top of that mountain. And if you look at any um, uh, photos online, most of the time it has this big plume of snow that just goes and goes off the top. It's because there's a jet stream hits the top of that mountain. And there is a short window in this time right here in, the, in, uh, in May that the, um, because of some different weather uh, things that happen in that region, it pushes the jet stream north and there's some clear days that mountaineers run to the top as fast as they can to get up there while that jet stream is not right there. And once June hits, usually the season for climbing is over and because the monsoons come up and hit and there's big winds again. And I've been following it. There's a blog that I follow just to see how many people are, are summiting. And the guesstimation list, last year there was over 800 summited, really clear year. This year there's possibilities of 1,000 summiting. But one of the things that's happened, and this, this article talked about it, is there have been different companies that have popped up that are leading people or guiding people to the top. Now, you get up there, if you or I were dropped on the top of Mount Everest right now, we would be dead within a few minutes because there's not enough oxygen for us to survive. So it takes a lot of, of, of building a body up. Most everybody that climbs has an oxygen mask on them. And so if someone's going to lead you up there, you want somebody who knows what they're doing, right? And so what's happened here in the last years is, is some of the locals and the local tribe in that area are called Sherpas. And they were yak herders and just people that lived at high altitude until western climbers started showing up. And then some of them started learning how to climb and to guide and that. In fact, the, the gentleman that has the record, and he set his own record and he keeps setting his own record, he's been to the top of Everest 23 times. Uh, it's a Sherpa that lives in that area. Very highly paid man that's, that's hired by one of these Western guides. But what happens is in the last few years, people have, have had trouble paying one of these great guiding services to guide them to the top, which costs about $75,000 right now. A lot of money. A lot of money to do that. So these guide services that are locally owned have popped up, and you can go on a guided climb to the top of Everest for about 10 grand with these. That sounds good, doesn't it? Okay, how many of you would rather pay 75 grand than 10 grand? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, see, that's what's happening, is saying that all Sherpas are mountain climbers is saying like all Montanans are elk hunting guides, okay? It's not the same thing. And so what's happened is there have been more and more deaths that are happening up there in the last years because what happens is people are going up. People are, are taking, hey, I can, I can spend 10 grand and get pulled to the top. And they don't have the experience guiding them. They don't have the equipment. Some of these guide services are uh, 30 climbers to one guide. You know, th that's not great odds. And so there's been a lot of, 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 um, of de disaster that's happened because of that. And so the point is, is that not everyone who says they're a guide is a guide. 
Okay, that's what we see. And here a few weeks ago, we spent some time going through verses 14 through verse 36, and where Jesus heals a man, but the, the story doesn't follow the healing, it follows the response. Because the religious leaders say, well, you know, no, this, this Jesus guy, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. And Jesus' response is, you need to watch out for these religious leaders because they are not spiritual people. Even if they claim to be, they are not. And so he continues on here. We're going to continue on in verse 37 because some of the same discussion continues here. And Jesus is going to spend some time today giving specifics. This is why they are not spiritual people. And again, like I mentioned before, one of the great things about preaching through Luke or preaching through a book is you have to preach what's there. Because I wouldn't choose to preach this if I just said, all right, I'm going to take ten lessons. What am I going to preach on? It's not one of them. But I found this week has been powerful for me spiritually and just walking through uh, some of this and, and the life change that uh, hopefully it's bringing in me and, and brings in all of us. Okay, so here's what happens next. Uh-oh, okay. So old faith and dirty dishes. Let's look at the first verses here. In verse 37, it says, When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Ooh, gross, he's not washing before the meal. Okay, our mind immediately goes to hygiene. We, always, we wash our hands before meals. That's, that's for us. We do that because of hygiene. But that's not the point here. What's happened is, is the priests were called in the old law when they worked at the temple to wash their hands, to keep their hands clean as a ceremonial offering to God. And so what the Pharisees have done is said, okay, if that's good for the priests to be clean that way, then all of us need to do that. Scripture didn't say that. But they're binding something that is just for the priests under certain circumstances to everyone all the time. And if they don't do it, in the mind of the Pharisees, they're not very spiritual. And so verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the ones who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for you, but now for you, what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. So the religious leaders accused Jesus of being unspiritual because his hands are unwashed. You're not following this tradition that was intended only for priests, so you're really not going all the way with God. And Jesus' response says, well, you are unspiritual because your lives are unwashed. Look at the things that you've got going on in your life. And you can remedy this, start by giving to the poor, is where he starts here. But we're going to continue to see what else Jesus says, because he comes up with a list here in the next little bit. Speaking to the Pharisees in verse 42, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other garden, kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Okay, I've never done this before, but take garden herbs and try to say, all right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for God. One, two, how, think, how long do you think that's going to take? It'll take a while. Yeah, it might take a few years. Yeah, it's going to take a while. And so Jesus says here is that you're putting a huge amount of energy on small details, but you're neglecting concepts that are much greater and much more important, like justice and loving God. It's take your, you want to offer to God tenth, as the law calls them to, then absolutely do that. That's important. But you cannot do those small things without neglecting justice, meaning taking care of those who can't take care of themselves, and loving God. If you don't have those things down, then it's kind of pointless to, to, try, to try to figure out how many spices that, that you need to give to God. And he continues on. 
in verse 43. It says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful meetings in the marketplaces. Boy, they love the recognition of people, apparently more than God. And so as long as people are saying things are going great, then, then I'm on board and this, this is okay. Uh, look at verse 44. He continues on. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. And so the idea is is that they weren't supposed to get close to dead bodies so they would be unclean. And so graves were supposed to be marked so that you know that you're near dead bodies so that you don't get close to it. So the idea of an unmarked grave is someone can walk over and become unclean without realizing it. And so Jesus is saying your presence in the lives of others actually causes them to be unclean. It doesn't bring them closer to Christ. Your presence in their life brings them further from Christ. Whew, bad deal here. Verse uh, 45 then you can imagine in this meal here, then one of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And so Jesus is going to spend some time now talking about some of their interpretations of the law. Here it is, experts of the law. Verse 46, I'll read there. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So the teachings create more burdens than solutions for people who want to follow God. If you look at Jesus, what he says in Matthew 28-30, and you can write that down if you want. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Come to me. You who are rest, you who are weary, I'm going to take care of you. See, Jesus says the opposite. I'm going to make your burden lighter. You look at Acts 15.10, the response of, of some of the church leaders there is, we are not going to put burdens on people that our ancestors couldn't bear themselves. Okay? We're putting burdens on these people that, that and that's what that Jesus accuses the, the religious leaders here of doing, is you create all of these teachings that just make more and more burdens and burdens and burdens, like the hand-washing, ceremonial hand-washing, whatever it may be. There was tons of them. And those things didn't necessarily bring people closer to God at all. They just made more rules and regulations for people to have to walk through. Verse 47. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, which is interesting here. Abel is the first person who is executed in the Old Testament, and Zechariah is the last person in the Old Testament, godly person that was, that was executed, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. And so in other words, he's saying, you guys build all these beautiful tombs for ancient prophets, then you persecute and ignore modern prophets right now. You're missing the point. The point is to, to repent and to turn to God, and you're missing all of that. Let's continue on. Verse 52, he says, Woe to you, experts of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Wow, what an accusation here. Your example prevents others from entering the kingdom of God. God's kingdom has always been about, and you see this with the temple. It was supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations so people could come no matter where they were in order to see what God was about and understand. And what many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day had done is they had appointed themselves as the doorkeepers, tightly hanging on to those keys and those doors saying, I will decide who enters and under what conditions they enter. 
And Jesus is saying, that was never my intention for my kingdom, what it's supposed to be about. This is about religious stagnation. This is not about a vibrant faith. And so the religious leaders have an opportunity. How are they going to respond? Look at verses 53 and 54. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Oh, man, they got the opportunity. Will they repent? Nope, not going to happen. But they attack and accuse. That's the response. When Jesus reveals where their hearts are at, instead of humbling themselves and repenting, they attack and accuse and attack and accuse. And it just gets worse from here. And some of the battle lines are drawn. When I look at this passage, and there's a lot of things uh, that that I think are, are great to consider here. Let's think about this, following God long term. Hey, I'm going to speak to those of us that have been Christians for a while specifically. And if you're a new Christian, then just think about this for the future. Is that we've got opportunities when we follow God. Is that when we decide to do that, sometimes we, we can decide, as the, the parable of the sower talks about, we can fall away from God and decide to do something else and run far away from God. Now that's, uh, that's what happens sometimes to follow God. Satan gets a hold of us, we don't, uh, we don't resist, and, and we... Um, choose something else to be more important than God. But here's another option of what can happen when we follow God long term. We can become essentially a Pharisee, like Jesus talks about here, is that we become religiously stagnated in that we figure out all sorts of, of rules and regulations and numbers and all that sort of stuff is what we get down, but we miss the heart of the issue and the transformation. And, uh, and that happens. Uh, another Hopefully what all of us are shooting for is being a spirit-filled, mature follower of Christ. Okay? We're going to talk about these last two here for, for the next uh, few minutes. And so religious stagnation, how does that happen? What is that all about? If we go back and we look through the things that Jesus just accused the religious leaders of, we're going to see religious stagnation includes hypocrisy. In other words, the rules for me are different than the rules for you. Okay? I get exceptions and you have to obey certain types of rules, and I'm exempt from those. Okay, We can do that in all sorts of different ways, and if we're not careful, we'll all be guilty of that. Next is that we neglect internal matters, because it is so much easier to clean the outside of the cup and to look good than to really get into the nitty-gritty and try to figure out what our own motivations are. The Proverbs say, the soul of a person is like a deep well. It's, it's hard to figure out sometimes what motivates us, what's really going on inside of us, but it is vitally important because it is easy to find some ways to look good religiously, look good on the outside, but be absolutely rotten to the core on the inside because we've never really um, decided that I, I'm going to... I'm going to go all the way with God. I'm going, to, I'm going to mine the insides and figure out what my motivations is and, and get them in line with Christ. That's where, um, on Wednesday night here a while back, we talked about how, um, I think Beth brought it up. If it's wise, it's usually Beth, right? That's usually what happens, right? No, Beth is saying no. How many of you agree? If it's wise, it's usually Beth. Yeah, see, don't turn around, Beth. Everybody's hands up. That's how it works, right? But just talked about how, how there's times where we go through really, really tough struggles, faith struggles in life. Those are usually because God is teaching us something very, very important to, to mold us into something different. If we don't struggle in our faith, then the reality is, is we're probably have, we're, we're neglecting the inside somewhere. 
Okay, loving praise of people more than the praise of God. Uh, man, that's sometimes we can just, hey, if, if so-and-so says I'm good, I'm good. I don't need to worry about anything else. But all of us know that in faith, sometimes we're going to have to walk in a way that, um, and make decisions that maybe the rest, even people of faith around us, are, are not on board with yet. But we have to be courageous, saying, I love what God has to say more than what anybody else does, and I've got to do the right thing no matter what. And we have to do that within our families. Um, hopefully, in our families, we call each other higher, but there's part of calling each other higher is somebody steps out first and says, I care what God thinks more than what's comfortable right at this moment in time. Um, also, religious stagnation includes these burdensome traditions. It's amazing. The things that we can count... Ways that we can define how a person is faithful or how they aren't. It's amazing when you go through scripture how God demonstrates or how the, the examples that he gives of what a person of faith looks like. You see it in the fruit of the Spirit. A person that is faithful demonstrates this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Read through the, the second half of Ephesians. You see the same type of descriptions that are given for people who are faithful. Sometimes... We can, in our religious stagnation, create different types of things and different types of, of, of examples or, or stereotypes of what a spiritual person looks like. It's important for us to go back to Scripture in this. But all of this to say is, just like the Sherpas, they may have the right last name, they may look good, they may call themselves a guide. The ones that do not have the experience are not going to be good guides. The same is true for us spiritually, is just because someone has been a Christian a long time does not mean that they are spirit-led. Hey, that's important for all of us to really think about and get our hearts and minds around. Because if I've been a Christian a long time, and I've met Christians, people that have been Christians a long time, and I pray that I'm never this way, and that's my commitment and my prayer, that I, I, never, I never go this way. But what happens is, is I, I can become, as I go along in faith, I become comfortable, I become complacent, I stop mining my, my own heart, and I start saying, well, that's, that's for them, it's not for me, you know, these moral things. I, can, I have ways around doing whatever I want to. I just listen to people who agree with me already, and, and man, I'm ready to, to put out other burdens on, on other people, that sort of thing. There's people that have been Christians a long, long time that I've had interaction with, that's been really, really difficult, and I think all of us have at times, because of this right here. Is it ultimately not being transformed and changed into what God wants us to be, but focusing on the outside of the cup? And so for all of us, man, that's, this should be something that every one of us, no matter where we are in our walk spiritually, considers and thinks about right now, is that, boy, I do not want to be this person that is absolutely empty on the inside because because I've not really come in contact with the changing love and the abundant life of Jesus. It was true for them. It's true for us now. So the question for us is, how can I stay a spirit-filled follower of Christ within this context? How do I, how do I keep on fire with my faith? How do I continue to, to transform and to change and to become more what God wants me to be? And how do I... How do I be full of the fruit of the Spirit, and, and out of me goes peace and joy to other people and not conflict and, and heartache and all that kind of stuff. How do I do that? Well, Micah chapter 6. Micah is from the Old Testament. It's one of these gems from, uh, from these 
sometimes forgotten books in the Minor Prophets. But Micah lived in a time where people were really excited about religious tradition and what they could do, how often they go and participate in, in religious ritual and all this sort of thing. And Micah has been commissioned by God to say, no, nah, nah, no, there's more to it than this. And look what he has to say. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? He's asking this question. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Okay, this is one of the things that the Old Testament talked about. When you come to God, you bring these things, okay? God's excited about that. He, he called the people to do that. But to do that without having a heart for God is pointless. All it is is, is ashes and, and, and a cow, but will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Okay, so I'm going to up my game. Not only am I going to offer what God requires, but I'm going to offer way, way over and above what God requires because that shows how spiritual I am and how great I am. Or maybe I should offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. The people all around Israel, this was common. When you hear of the gods in the Old Testament, Molech, Chemosh, all of these gods of the different people around the Israelites, what was common is they required the sacrifice of the firstborn child, usually the firstborn son. Terrible stuff. And so even with Solomon allowed some of these, even in Jerusalem, for, for years after Solomon, he allowed one of these idols to be built over on the other side of the hill that the god of Molech, where he had hands that were made of metal and they would make the hands cherry red with fire and then put infants in there to sacrifice them to those gods. Terrible. And so Micah is saying, that was up on the side of the hill from Jerusalem for centuries. He says, shall I offer the firstborn of my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, because that shows how committed and how on fire for God I am. Am I going to do all that stuff? And look at the response here. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God's looking for. Just like Jesus said, give what you have to the poor. Let us not, as people who follow God, ever get tangled up with their traditions and, and, and whatever other types of things, ministries, whatever they may be. But let us always be people that remember to go back to exactly what God wants us to be, which is act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And that is living the abundant life of Jesus. If you'd like to become a Christian today or you'd like prayers, the elders are waiting in the back. And we'd love for whoever's convicted in their heart today to join the abundant life of Jesus. Let's stand up and let's sing together.